Thanks, Bill. Thanks, everybody, for coming. It's a pleasure to be at the Ohio State University. Uh, it's true that I'm the uh, director of the Middle East Studies Program at the University of Vermont, but that's a little bit like being the Prince of Liechtenstein. Uh, I control everything I survey, but I really don't survey all that much. It's me, a guy in the history department, and we just hired a new anthropologist, a Middle East anthropologist, so I I claim that on my watch, the amount of Middle East faculty at the University of Vermont increased by 50%. Um, I want to talk today about oil and democratic prospects in the Persian Gulf states. I want to do three things. First, I want to talk about oil and democracy. Is there any kind of relationship? Is it worthwhile to think of oil as either an impediment to or much, much less likely uh, uh, an incentive for democracy? And I'll, and I'll uh, make the argument that oil, in fact, is an impediment to democracy, which is very much in the standard literature. Then I'm going to say, I'm going to talk about how the Gulf monarchies fit in, the countries that I've done most of my work on, Saudi Arabia and then the smaller Gulf monarchies, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, and Oman. And finally, I'll conclude very, very briefly with something on how does, what does all this mean for Iraq? Right? Can we learn any lessons from looking at the general literature about oil and democracy and then the, uh, the examples of what's going on to the south of Iraq, can we learn anything about what the prospects for Iraq are? So those are the three tasks for today that I've set for myself. The literature on oil and, and democracy, which we'll shorthand call the Rantier State Literature, a term coined in the, in the late 70s in articles by uh, uh, Hazem Beblaoui and Jacques Delacroix and Hussein Mahdavi, who kind of started this this particular research project. Uh, the Rantier State literature has really been premised on the notion right, that there is a negative relationship between oil wealth and democracy. Right? And this negative correlation between oil wealth and democracy has largely been borne out in the, in the, in the empirical literature. Uh, it was most recently confirmed by Michael Ross in his cross-regional study in world politics in 2001. But this literature on the Rantier State, which really had its heyday from the late 70s to the, to the mid to late 90s, uh, never really came to any conclusions about why there was a negative relationship between oil and democracy. Right? right off the bat, people who worked on this topic said, well, let's first off, let's just set aside those countries that were stable, consolidated democracies before oil. So there's Norway, goes goes off the boards, right? But even within those, uh, those uh, countries that were the focus of a lot of the Rantier state work, there really hasn't been a settled, scholarly, conventional wisdom about why oil seems to work against the consolidation of democracy. Some of the early work in this, in this uh, tradition of scholarship especially that which flourished at the very beginning in the 70s, speculated that oil wealth depoliticized citizens, right? This is the classic American revolutionary slogan of no taxation without representation, and you turn it around. You don't have any taxation, you're not going to get any representation, right? And since oil states basically don't have to tax their population, especially the, the more wealthy oil states don't have to tax their population, then people basically don't demand political voice because the government is not extracting wealth from them. Uh, this is clearly not true, right? The Iranian Revolution was not conducted by depoliticized people, right? And even logically, I don't think that this relationship ever really held much weight. Right? In many ways, if I were a citizen of Kuwait, or Saudi Arabia, the government's actions would have much more impact on my pocketbook than the actions of the United States government have on my pocketbook as an American citizen. Right? And if we're just talking about economic interests and citizens' economic interests being vested in some kind of government decision-making, you would expect citizens in these states to want to have voice in their politics because they're, if we're just going on this kind of crude economic relationship, 
their economic futures are much more tied up than in many other places in the world with decisions made by the government. And of course, when we see oil price downturns in the mid-1980s and in the late 1990s, we see quite a bit of political upheaval in oil states, be it in Indonesia in the late 90s with the overthrow of the Suharto government or the rise of Hugo Chavez in Venezuela during the same time or the mid mid to late 80s upheavals in Algeria, which led to to some democratic openings that were immediately closed down, followed by a brutal civil war in Algeria. So this early notion that somehow oil depoliticizes citizens, I think, just doesn't have any empirical support. Now, others in the Rentier state tradition have argued that oil wealth increases the regime's ability to control society through co-optation. Here, Iran is basically set aside as an outlier, as an exception, and usually written off to the Shah's quirks in the Shah's personality, right? That the Shah wasn't willing to play this kind of patronage game effectively enough, and then when pressed, when when he was challenged, not willing to use his military to stay in power effectively enough. But this, if you will, second generation of explanations for the lack of, for for the negative relationship between oil and democracy basically posits that if you have a a lot of oil money, you can build... uh, effective patronage networks in society and through those patronage networks assure regime stability without having to concede any kind of democratic rights or democratic voice in that society. Of course, the flip side of this is that when oil rents decrease, you you as a regime cannot sustain those patronage networks and your regime will crumble. Terry Carl's book, The Paradox of Plenty, which was published in 1997 and uh, uh, is based on the Venezuelan case but makes a much larger uh, theoretical argument, is I think the best statement of this iteration of the Rentier state literature. Uh, Both uh, Carl and Kieran Chowdhury, who published in that same year a book called The Price of Wealth, 1997, which concentrated on Saudi Arabia and Yemen, uh, argued that these patronage networks actually left states not strong but weak. They both kind of played off something that Hussein Mahdavi, one of the earliest writers in this tradition, called that oil produces a flabby state, a state that's big, that has a lot of bureaucracy, right, that employs lots of people who are basically just part of these patronage networks, right? They don't really do anything. They don't have real jobs, right? They're just part of the government patronage network. But when called upon to actually do something, to actually administer, to actually govern, that these states actually don't have much capacity. And their evidence, the evidence particularly in Carl's, in Carl's theoretical argument, is that when the oil rents go down, these regimes collapse. I think that this is an extremely interesting and persuasive argument in many ways. But I want to uh, take exception to it in a few minutes down the line on a couple of points. I also want to just note for everybody that in this about 20-year development of the Rentier state literature, there was never an agreement on what actually made a Rentier state. Some people argued that it was the uh, extent of oil in the, global e- in, in the, in the overall economy, right? percentage of GDP, that made a rentier state. If it was more than half or more than a third or whatever, that that, that was the key indicator of the rentier condition. Other people argue, and I think much more persuasively, that it's the percentage of oil as, uh, as a part of the government's revenue. Because in the end, this rentier state argument is about the capabilities and constraints and incentives for state elites to act, to make certain choices, and that, and that the, the focus should be on, on the percentage of government revenue that comes from oil money, right? And because we all know oil money, this is my favorite, this is my favorite part of teaching this to my undergraduates, 
Everybody knows, of course, that the Beverly Hillbillies could only happen in America, right? Right? Because Jed went out into his backyard, shooting at some food, and up through the ground come a bubbling crude. Who owned that oil? Jed owned that oil. Everywhere else in the world, who would have owned that oil? The state would have owned that oil, right? And so, and so oil revenue comes into the state coffers, into the hands of state leaders, unmediated through society. And thus it doesn't have to be extracted from society. It comes directly from the international economy into the hands of the state. All right, so what we have is an interesting literature that basically put out some very interesting notions, established empirically, I think, a fairly good negative correlation between oil wealth and democracy, but couldn't really explain why and couldn't even explain what it took to be a rentier state. You know, much like pornography, we knew it when we saw it. Right. So that's kind of where the debate sat. All right. By the end of the 90s, uh, this, this rentier state literature seemed to have basically run its course, and there really wasn't much, many contributions in the last 10 years to that debate. Until a, a real Bigfoot, somebody who's really important, that is to say, not a political scientist, <laughs> weighed in on this debate. And that's Tom Friedman, right? the New York Times international affairs columnist. Right? Friedman's first law of petropolitics, which he enunciated in Foreign Policy magazine in May, June 2006, a year ago, states that as oil revenues go up, freedom goes down. And he hired somebody who knows something about statistics to do a neat little correlation Right, with, with Freedom House rate rankings and, and, oil, and the price of oil. Uh, Friedman harks back to the early uh, years of the Rentier state literature without citing anybody. I mean, he's not a political scientist, right? Uh, not an academic, doesn't cite anybody. And believe me, many of the people I know who have written in this tradition grind their teeth constantly, the fact that Friedman doesn't cite them. But in any event, Friedman falls back on the argument that basically with oil money you can co-opt enough people, enough, uh, enough important elements of your society, and you can basically act in, a, in an authoritarian manner. And thus, Friedman uses the, the first law of petropolitics to tie together phenomenon as, as, as diverse regionally as Chavez, Putin, and Ahmadinejad, president of Iran, right? as all as part of the, his, his contention that high oil prices are not only ruinous for Right, are, uh, for, for uh, America, that uh, we should be getting away from oil, reducing our demand for oil, but also ruinous for oil-producing countries themselves because they produce and encourage authoritarian governance. So with Friedman on the case, people have started to pay attention once again to this relationship between oil and democracy. So where does this leave us in terms of theoretical literature, in, th in terms of theoretical conclusions? It, it, I think it leaves us with a pretty good notion established by this literature that there is a negative relationship, a generally negative relationship between oil wealth and democracy in general. Why? Still up in the air. Personally, I tend to think that the co-optation argument has a lot of power to it. Right? I buy the co-optation part, and I also buy the notion that oil rents can make a government flabby in terms of its extractive capabilities, that is, that is in terms of its taxing capabilities, because the government doesn't tax. However, I think that uh, uh, Terry Carl and Kieran Chowdhury and people who have emphasized how oil revenue cuts away at the administrative capability of governments miss uh, an extremely important element, where oil revenue has strengthened, I think, the administrative capability of governments on other sides. It strengthened, I argue, it strengthened the coercive element of these states. With oil money, you can buy bigger security forces. Right? You can build up your domestic intelligence services. You can build up your police and domestic security forces. Right? You can also extend the reach of the state further into society with this money not for extractive purposes, but for distributive purposes, through subsidies, through education, through the provision of education, through the establishment of your court system throughout the country. And so while I do think that 
Chowdhury and Carl have an interesting insight on the flabbiness of the extractive capacity of rentier states. I think they miss the fact that oil wealth can, in fact, increase the administrative capacity of states in these other areas, which helps to solidify regimes and helps to allow these regimes to fend off societal pressures for greater voice in politics. All right. So where do the Gulf monarchies fit into to this theoretical framework? Overall, I think the Gulf monarchies, Saudi Arabia and the smaller states, fit this overall Rentier thesis very, very nicely. They are all oil states. Right? And the key, I would argue, here is government revenue. Right? Saudi Arabia, just for example, Saudi Arabia, the biggest, the most important of these states. Right? At the beginning of the oil boom in the 70s, right, there were years in which oil revenue, oil revenue itself accounted for two-thirds of the, of, of the published GDP of the country. Now that's gone way down. Right? Oil revenues basically account for, for around a third, sometimes less than a third, depending upon fluctuations in prices, of Saudi GDP. But oil revenues still account for roughly 80% of Saudi government revenue. Right? Some years it goes up toward 89%. Some years it might go down in the 70s. Right? But the Saudi state, despite some diversification of its national economy, right? the Saudi state still relies almost exclusively upon oil revenues to fund its government operations. Right? And that is, of course, true of all the rest of the, of the Gulf monarchies. None of these states is democratic in any way, shape, or form, nor does any of these states look to move to be on the road to real democracy. If we take, as a rough definition of democracy, uh, Robert Dahl's notion that you can replace the executive by direct or indirect vote of the public. Right? You're not going to vote the al Saud out of power in Saudi Arabia or the al Sabah in Kuwait out of power. It's not going to happen. Now, there are important differences among these states. Right? Kuwait has a long parliamentary history compared to the others because of the particularities of its history, its earlier independence from the British compared to the other smaller states. Bahrain has deep sectarian divisions with a Sunni ruling family ruling a, a Shia majority population. Uh, Oman has regional divisions uh, and had a long-running civil war in the 70s the southern part of Oman. And, of course, there's the peculiar and particular relationship between religion and the state in Saudi Arabia. Right? So they each have different histories, and I'm more than happy to talk about those different histories. But I don't think we should make a fetish out of those differences. Right? For the purposes of, of the issue before us today, oil and democracy, these states are more similar than they are different, and we can consider them members of a single category, right? Rentier states. And they all fit the overall Rentier thesis about the negative relationship between democracy and oil. However, and there's always a however, right, or else I wouldn't be here. However, there have been moves in all of these states toward not democracy. You know, let's call things what they are, not democracy. But there have been moves toward greater participatory politics since the 1990s. Now, the moves in this direction have come in two waves. One, during and after the Gulf War of 1990-91, and two, after the 9-11 crisis, after 2001. These two waves are not related to oil market fluctuations. Right? If we took the basic Rentier thesis, right, we would assume that state leaders would be secure at times of high oil prices, able to fund their patronage networks, able to maintain their coercive apparatus, and would not feel the need to even make bows toward the notion of greater public participation in political life during those periods. We should see those kinds of moves to open up politics during times of fiscal crisis, when the state doesn't have the money to fund its patronage networks and to maintain its coercive apparatus 
the way it did before. And in fact, in many countries, that is a pattern we see. Algeria is a perfect example of this. Right? However, in the Gulf states themselves, right, these moves, these two waves of greater openings of the political system do not correlate with falls in oil prices. In fact, in both of these periods, oil prices are pretty good. Oil prices are pretty solid, and the state doesn't, and none of these states were experiencing fiscal crisis. They were, however, experiencing political crisis. Right? 1990-91, of course, Saddam Hussein's Kuwait invades, conquers, and annexes Kuwait. Saudi Arabia opens up the country to 500,000 American and other foreign troops to launch a, 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 a counteroffensive to recover Kuwait and restore the ruling family of Kuwait. This is a serious political crisis. The eyes of the world are focused on these places. Right? These regimes take steps during and after the crisis to kind of open up politics a bit in response to right, these political crises. Kuwait, the Kuwaiti ruling family, restores its parliament after it is uh, returned to power by the United States. In the 1980s, Kuwait, flush with oil money, basically tried to close down its parliament. Kuwait was, is the only parliament in the Gulf states right, that has constitutional legislative powers. All the rest of the parliaments are basically advisory bodies. But Kuwait actually had legislative powers. In the, in the 80s, the Kuwaiti ruling family moved to curtail and in the end uh, uh, remove the legislative powers from the assembly and replace it with a purely consultative council. After their return to power in 1991, they restored the Constitution and restored the, the, the full legislative powers that the 1962 Kuwait Constitution uh, gave to the elected parliament. Oman, Bahrain, and Saudi Arabia all appoint consultative councils for the first time in the wake of the Gulf War. In the case of Bahrain, in the case of Oman and Saudi Arabia, these were seen as little steps forward because there had never been anything approaching a national quasi-legislative body in those places. In Bahrain, this was something of a step backward because Bahrain actually had a legislature uh, from independence in 1971 that had been closed down by the, by the uh, emir, by the prince, in 1975. However, all three states felt that in the wake of this political crisis, they had to move toward greater formal avenues of political participation. Cutter held municipal elections during that time. World trends, the democratic wave in Eastern Europe following the collapse of the Soviet Union, following the end of Soviet, uh, of so the Soviet Empire in Eastern Europe, combined with the regional crisis, I would argue, moved these regimes in this direction. Right? Partly this is in response to grassroots demands. The Kuwaiti regime in exile had to appeal to its citizens in exile for support. And that's when it made the promise to restore the constitutional powers of the elected parliament. Uh, there was evidence, particularly in Saudi Arabia, through petitions and, po and, and an amount of popular uh, activism from a very low base in Saudi Arabia, but an amount of popular activism that people were quite disquieted by, by the Gulf crisis. And so the state moved, the regime moved, to give them greater uh, institutionalized avenues into the political process. Partly, I think the, the regimes also saw this as a preemptive move to appeal to outside actors, particularly the United States, to get on the train that seemed to be moving in the democratic direction. Now, the second wave occurs during this decade, since 2000. Clearly, 9-11 has something to do with it, with the American democracy push, however short-lived that democracy push in the region has been. Local events at this time also have a role. Uh, a new ruler in Bahrain. Right? New ruler in Bahrain comes into power in 1999. And in 2000, he announces a plan for an elected parliament before the crisis of 9-11. This second wave of political activism has seen much more activist politics in Kuwait there was actually a, a, a demonstration that, in effect, brought down the Kuwaiti cabinet last year. Uh, complaints about corruption, 
and political in the political process, particularly in the electoral process, right, led to a number of activists, in effect, storming the parliament in Kuwait and taking it over. This was unprecedented in Kuwaiti history. Right? They were supported by, a, by the parliamentary minority, which was pushing the government uh, on the issue, the issue around which this coalesced was, uh, was the electoral system. Kuwait has a 50-seat elected parliament, 25 districts. Top two vote-getters in each district are elected to parliament. Right. Opposition, uh, the opposition basically said that this promotes corruption, small number of voters. The government can intervene easily in districts to manipulate results. What we want, what they said they wanted was a five-district uh, a five-district division of the country in which the top ten vote-getters in each district would, would uh, go to parliament. And uh, they won. They won the, the summer of two, the June 2006 election. Uh, and they basically instituted this changed electoral system. Uh, there were real elections in Bahrain in 2003 and, and, and just uh, 2002 and just last year to, in uh, November, late November, early December, the two rounds of the voting for parliament in Bahrain, in which uh, forces uh, that represent the Shia community, which had boycotted the first election, won a plurality of the seats in the parliament, won uh, 17 out of the 40 seats. There was the expansion of the electorate in Oman, where before elections were limited to a very, very small number of electors who elected members to the Consultative Council. Now uh, everyone over 21 in Oman can vote. Uh, there were municipal elections in Saudi Arabia for the first time since the early 1960s. Parliamentary elections are planned in Qatar for later this year or early next year. And there were even indirect elections to the most rentier of all the rentier states, the United Arab Emirates. It can't be oil prices that drove these two waves of slight moves toward greater political, institutionalized channels for political participation. Right. These two time periods, the early to mid-90s and the last three or four or five years, should have seen movement in the other direction if oil prices are what drive regime calculations on these questions. Oil revenues were solid in the first part of the 90s. They've been rising for the last four years to their present high rates. We should also note that the oil price downturns of the mid-1980s and the late 1990s did not witness increases in political freedoms or new political initiatives in these regimes. It's not oil that drives these concessions on the parts of these rulers, but responses to specifically political crises, specific regional political crises. One other thing we should note about the expansion of, of uh, popular participation in these countries, again, not democracy, but the expansion of popular participation. We should note the success of Islamist political groups and candidates in these more open political processes. In the June 2006 parliamentary elections in Kuwait, Islamists of various groupings took nearly half of the seats in the parliament. In Bahrain, fully 38 out of the 40 elected representatives in the November-December 2006 elections are affiliated with Islamist groups or are ideologically sympathetic to Islamist positions. In Saudi Arabia, Islamist lists for the municipal elections in 2005 did extremely well. This is consistent with patterns from across the region. Now, there was a strain in early Rantier state literature that basically said, because these countries uh, don't have normal economies, right, and because the government doesn't have to extract resources from its citizens through taxation, you're not going to have political uh, uh, platforms formed around economic issues. They're going to be formed around symbolic issues. And thus, the argument was Islamist politics would be, extremely, uh, would be an extremely important motivating factor in oil states. The problem with this... Uh, with this contention is even though it fits the oil states, the non-oil states in the Muslim world have also seen Islamist groups do extremely well in politics. So I think it's something besides 
oil that, that, that privileges uh, and, and has pushed Islamist political groups to the forefront at this time. But it's also important to note in the specifics of these countries that these Islamist groups are not monolithic. In Kuwait, Shia Islamists ally with independents, not with Sunni Islamists, to form parliamentary blocs. And Sunni Islamists joined with more liberal Kuwaiti MPs to push for electoral reform, the change in the districting system. In Bahrain, Shia Islamists basically opposed the government and allied with liberals in the elections, liberals and nationalists, the remnants of what was once in the 50s and 60s a very strong leftist nationalist movement in Bahrain. While Sunni Islamists in Bahrain tend to be very pro-government and back the government, the government supported them in the electoral process. Saudi Islamists are not exactly anti-government either, at least some of them. But it's interesting to note that the oil states in the Arab world are not different from the non-oil states in the strength of Islamist political tendencies at the grassroots. So what can we conclude from this very brief review of the Gulf monarchies and the question of greater political participation and the, and the larger question of democratization? First, real democracy isn't anywhere on the horizon for these states. And oil, I think, is a big part of the reason why. Oil gives these governments, both carrots and sticks, the ability to co-opt and the ability to coerce at levels that would not be possible without oil revenues. If oil suddenly becomes a much less desired international commodity, there will very likely be regime crises in these states, I would say. Perhaps those crises could have a democratic outcome, but that's not inevitable. Secondly, moves toward greater political activism and political participation do not seem to be correlated to changes in oil prices. Rather, such changes, which are basically decisions made by, by the political leadership, these are top-down initiatives for the most part, these changes come from political crises, political, distinctly political crises, not economic or fiscal crises as the local leadership see the need to allow for a release of popular pressures in the face of regional and international pressures on them. These kinds of changes can also come from leadership changes at the top, with Bahrain being the best example of that. I don't want to deny that there are there are, I don't want to deny the fact that there are real political pressures in these countries from the publics. I think there are real politics and we have evidence of, of political organization, either through petitions or through the establishment of quasi-political parties to contest these more open uh, elections. Right? But for the most part, these political reforms, these decisions to open up the process are top-down processes. Right? They literally are very much made by, from the weighing of costs and benefits by leaders. Okay. What does all this mean for Iraq? Is there anything that we can take from this discussion that might give us some sense of the roadmap uh, of where Iraq might be going? Well, I think that the oil factor undoubtedly adds to other factors, security problems, ethnic and sectarian differences, which make the establishment of a stable, consolidated democracy in Iraq very unlikely. Oil contributes to the winner-take-all attitude at the national level, right? You control the government, you control the oil money, right? Now, maybe you can compromise from that, you know, split differences. Money is, a, is something that can be divided, right? But control of the government gives you control of the oil resources. Oil also contributes to regional secessionist or radical decentralization movements. One of the reasons the Kurds want Kirkuk so badly is because Kirkuk pumps a million barrels of oil a day. If the Kurds can get Kirkuk, Kirkuk is not part of the Kurdish regional uh, uh, autonomous area, right? If they can get Kirkuk, which they probably will, right, they will have their own army, their own government, 
and a million barrels of oil a day, right? It will walk like a duck. It will quack like a duck. It will fly like a duck. But we're not going to call it a duck because nobody wants an independent Kurdistan, right? But in effect, if the Kurds get oil, uh, they won't need Baghdad for anything. One can also look at, this, at, at the radical decentralization program of the, of the al-Hakim party, what used to be called the Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq. They just changed their name last week to the even more difficult to pronounce Supreme Iraqi Islamic Council. They dropped the revolution part. They said, Saddam's gone. We don't need a revolution anymore, right? But their platform is for a nine-government uh, nine autonomous region in the center and south of the country, south of Baghdad, right? which would include uh, most of the rest of the, Iraqi, of the known Iraqi oil resources, probably in, in an ideal world with everything settled down and an appropriate investment put in, could easily be producing uh, 2 million barrels of oil a day very quickly and could, could up that, again, in a stable political situation with some amount of foreign investment, could probably double that very, very easily. Right? Both the Kurds and the, and, and the al-Hakim group, the, the Supreme Council, uh, both are advocating for a, a radically decentralized federal system where regional governance control the oil, control their oil resources, and uh, receive the, the, uh, the proceeds from those oil sales. Certainly, the overall tendency of oil to be negatively correlated with democracy was borne out in Iraq before 2003, and, and I think it will probably continue down the line. If there are moves toward preserving the democratic elements currently present in the Iraqi constitution and in Iraqi politics, those moves, I think, will have less to do with the price of oil than with the specifics of politics on the ground in Iraq. With the ultimate resolu resolution of the civil war there, and with the political bargaining that will accompany that ultimate resolution of the civil war. Can democracy emerge from civil wars? Perhaps, but the odds aren't very good. The, same, the stage, at least for me, seems to more likely be set for a strong man to emerge from the new Iraqi army, bolstered by oil revenues, popular among large, uh, 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 among large elements of the Arab population of Iraq, Right, where the politicians that have emerged from the democratic process uh, have not done a very good job in providing safety, security, stability, prosperity to their constituents. This strong man, bolstered by oil revenues, seems to me to be a more likely result in Iraq than the consolidation of democracy. And with that, happy to take any questions. Right. There were people in the Coalition Provisional Authority who were very much uh, in favor of that, of that model. Uh, it ran and we have an army there to make sure that it works. Sure. Uh, well, whether the army could have made it work, I don't know. But, uh, but uh, it, was certainly all, it was certainly something that was much discussed. Yet when, when the Coalition Provisional Authority issued its sweeping privatization decrees in September of 2003, Ambassador Bremer basically privatized almost the entire Iraqi economy. Right? He very explicitly exempted the oil sector from that privatization. And I think the reason is this. In, in, in these oil companies in the Middle East, in these oil countries in the Middle East, uh, the nationalization of oil, the day that, that, that these governments got control of their own resources from the foreign, from multinational energy companies, is basically seen as the real declaration of independence, the real independence day for these countries. Control of oil is, uh, has become so symbolically linked to national independence that any politician in Iraq who would say, okay, right, you're going to get money out of this. Here, here's, here's your share of the new Iraqi National Oil Company, right, which is going to be a holding company that's going to let contracts to ExxonMobil and Total and, and, and Sinopac and Luke Oil, right, 
to come in and, and develop our oil, just like in the old days in the 40s, right, it, wouldn't be, it, it, it wouldn't be a sell. It wouldn't be a sell. There'd be enormous popular reaction against that. Let me give you one example. Uh, after 1991, the Kuwaiti government basically said, we want to bring international oil companies in to develop the oil resources along the Kuwait-Iraq border. They didn't want to do that because they lacked the capital or the expertise or anything like that. They wanted to do it to try to invest international actors in the stability and security of that border. This is called Plan Kuwait, okay? And they, it just so happened that Plan Kuwait basically called for an American company, a British company, a French company, a Russian company, and a Chinese company <laughs> to have uh, their own little blocks along the border, right? Uh, it's been now uh, over 10 years since Plan Kuwait was first proposed. Kuwaiti Parliament has turned it down every time it's come before it. Why? Because Kuwaiti Parliament says, we're not, we're not letting the international oil companies back in this country with equity stakes in our oil. This is our oil. We're not going to do it. And I think that that, uh, that kind of sentiment uh, is, is probably widespread in Iraq, too, and why that... Uh, idea, which has, I think, a lot of merits to it on the drawing board, just as a political so non-starter. Well, they're they not. Still? See, the problem is they're not really. The, the Iraqi oil industry is in such a mess, and it's been so starved of capital for 20 years, basically from Iran-Iraq war, international sanctions. Basically, we're getting on to almost 30 years of an oil industry that's been starved of capital. They got. They got to bring in foreign capital if they're gonna if they're gonna get back on their feet. Seems to me anyway. Yes, two things. Uh, one is that the settlement system of this cooperation. Minority is the driver of that. for example, and when you look at Iraq has a majority of Shiites, Bahrain has a majority of Shiites, United Yeah, definitely. All right, let's, let's do uh, expatriates first and Shia second, okay? Uh, expatriates, yeah. I mean, 80% of, at least 80% of the population of the United Arab Emirates is expatriate. At least 55% of the population of Kuwait is expatriate. At least 80% of the population of Qatar is expatriate, without a doubt. Uh, and that has enormous social consequences in these places, uh, people being able to be... Parents being afraid that their children aren't going to speak Arabic when they grow up. I mean, English really is the lingua franca in Dubai now, not Arabic. Right? Uh, politically, I think these expatriates are meaningless. I think they're absolutely meaningless politically. These are people who are powerless. Uh, the minute any of them sticks their head above, right, above, above the sand dunes to ask for something, they get clubbed down and sent home. Right? There were two major expatriate communities in the Gulf monarchies that people believed could have real political juice in a crisis. Palestinians in Kuwait, they spoke Arabic. They were a longstanding community there from the, from the 48, from the first Palestinian diaspora of 1948. They were the middle class in many parts of Kuwait. They were the middle managers of the Kuwaiti economy. After the Gulf War, because of Arafat's position in the Gulf War, they were all kicked out of Kuwait. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. Yemenis in Saudi Arabia, right? There were a million Yemenis in Saudi Arabia. Right? Uh, they were not the middle class, but they were the lower middle class. They were uh, plumbers and electricians and uh, guys who ran the shops for the Saudi owners, you know, that kind of thing. Because of Yemen's stance in the Gulf War of 1991, uh, they were all kicked out, about 750,000, just booted, bang. Nothing happened. If the Yemenis in, the Kuwait, in, in Saudi and the Palestinians in Kuwait couldn't do anything politically, I doubt that South Asians in the UAE are going to be able to do much. Now, 
Iranian minorities, not, not Arab Shia, but Iranian minorities, could they become a political lever for the Iranian regime? Maybe. Right? But that's more of a, that's less a, 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 a kind of a mass-based thing and more of a, a, a security issue. All right. How about Shia, Arab Shia? Majority in Bahrain, absolutely right. Important minority in Kuwait, maybe maybe 25% of the, of, the, of the citizen population of Kuwait is Kuwaiti Shia. Uh, about 10% maybe of the Saudi native population, but concentrated in the oil area, right? Uh, in Bahrain, the Shia are seen as a big threat by the regime. Uh, and, and, and as the regime has opened up politics, it's also tried to take steps to constrain Shia power. It gerrymanders districts, so the Shia majority can't get a majority of seats in the legislature. All right? It continues to exercise enormous uh, control over, attempt to maintain control over Shia organizing, uh, political and social organizing, through fairly restrictive associational laws and, 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 and uh group laws, you know, political group laws. Uh, and so in Bahrain, it's basically just seen as a threat. Shia is seen as a threat. Maybe these elections will give them enough, but maybe not. Kuwait and Saudi Arabia are different. Uh, I don't see any great worry about Shia in either of those places. Right? There was a lot of tension in the 80s during the Iran-Iraq war, right, where there was a lot of Sunni-Shia feeling. With the the rise in the last couple years of Sunni-Shia tensions, be it in Lebanon or more directly in Iraq, uh, there has been the return of some of those tensions. But in, in the case of both Kuwait and Saudi Arabia, at least so far, the governments have not tried to play that sectarian card. Saudi government has actually been on kind of a minor charm offensive toward its own Shia population. Municipal elections mean they're Shia municipal councils. Uh, the government uh, at the top level, the king, has spoken repeatedly about uh, how sectarianism is bad in the country and we're all Saudis, and he actually has used the word citizenship, which is a, you know, these are words, they're not actions, but they're new words in Saudi Arabia. So I don't see the regimes anyway, except in Bahrain, seeing the Shia as a threat right now. They see him basically as a, another group to be co-opted through the patronage process, basically. Professor Mueller. Would you explain a little bit more about what you mean by democracy in Iraq? I mean, a lot of things you're talking about are basically democratic in the sense the Kurds, for example, are trying to carve up their own empire as well. Right. They're not using force to do so. It's right. standard, I mean, uh, I mean, Vermont wants to secede from the United States. Some people in Vermont do, yeah, <laughs> that's true. Some people. So, so what they're doing is trying to, everybody's trying to lose the public treasury and right. get regional uh, benefits, but that's standard in democracy. Sure. Uh, the violence, obviously, is not. Right, right. Uh, and I have, uh, I have no doubt that, that a Kurdish breakaway region will be quasi-democratic. I mean, the, the Kurdish area is quasi-democratic, right? Everybody vote. What, what it's doing now is quasi-democratic. Yeah. democratic, it seems to me, unless they're using violence. Well, they are. I mean, well, they're trying to secede or yeah. secede. Yeah, they're using violence in Kirkuk to, to yeah, ethnically yeah, cleanse the area. But, uh, yeah, they're, they're trying to secede. I guess I, I should have said... Uh, uh, stable, consolidated, unified Iraq, right? Uh, I actually think, though, that, that what you're going to see is a civil war in the Arab area of Iraq, which gives the Kurds a lot of breathing space to consolidate themselves, right? I don't think that you're going to get a democratic result from, I think what you're going to get is a strongman emerging from this civil war atmosphere in southern Iraq, southern and central Iraq that once consolidated, who knows how many years that might take, is then going to turn on Kirkuk and go fight the Kurds. Uh, how much of the democratic institutions that the United States implanted and kind of forced on the Iraqis after the invasion that will survive that, I don't know. In form, they might survive, but I think in content, they won't. In that, I don't think that real executive power is going to be determined by any kind of vote of the citizens down the line. The way it is kind of now, kind you know. I mean, that's why the, the, the Maliki government is in. It has a majority of the seats in the parliament. I don't know how much longer that's going to last. You're not attributing all that to oil. No, no, not a, none of it to oil, frankly. 
there's any explanatory power in terms of the uh, like rise and fall of democracy in, in Russia in terms of its revenues and yeah. also whether a country like Turkmenistan is, is under the same kind of umbrella? Yeah, I don't know anything about Russia. Uh, Tom Friedman certainly thinks it does, and he's a smart guy. So, you know, I'll let people who know more about Russia. Uh, he's, not, he's not infallible, obviously. He was in favor of the Iraq War, but uh, but uh, uh, I'll let people who know more about Russia talk about that. Turkmenistan is an, a perfect and obvious candidate for rentier state status. I mean, this is a place I haven't looked at the stats, but my guess is that. Over 80% of the government revenue in Turkmenistan comes from gas, comes from the sale of gas. And that, and the fact that it's this crazy, well, he's dead now. The crazy guy's dead, you know, Turkmenbashi. Uh, I can't even pronounce the name of the guy who came after him. Uh, but uh, he ain't crazy, but he's no Democrat either, is my guess. Right? And so, yeah, I think that actually fits really well. Sure. Framework sure. on negative correlation. Couldn't a devil's advocate say that there's a stronger negative correlation between Arab governments yep. and authoritarian states? And yep. to prove the thesis of a correlation between authoritarian states and the possession of oil, the key would be your non Arab OPEC member. Right. So I would think Nigeria, Indonesia, and Venezuela would be crucial to. Right. All of those are moving much closer to democracy than, let's say, Egypt, a non-oil Arab state, Syria, or Jordan. Right. And if that's correct, and that just seems logical to me, mm -hmm. what, where does that go with the negative correlation to oil thesis? Right, right. Uh, I'll, I'll cite Michael Ross's stuff from, again, from, from world politics, where Michael... Uh, not only does oil, he does any kind of, of uh, extractive uh, resource-based economy, right? And he shows a fairly good correlation. But you're absolutely right. Indonesia and, and, and Nigeria are two cases. I'm not sure about Venezuela. Uh, I mean, Venezuela is one of, of Friedman's favorite examples of how higher oil prices leads to greater authoritarianism. Uh, but without a doubt, right, Nigeria and Indonesia recently have been moving in a more democratic way, despite the fact that they're oil states, they're oil governments. Nigeria but Nigeria has cycles, and that's the thing, right? And, and we'll see it in Nigeria. Indonesia, I'll let Bill talk about that, because I don't know anything about Indonesia. You think dem democracy has a good, it's, it's, it's fairly well implanted? Yeah. This is, this is, these are challenges to the thesis. <laughs> these are challenges to the thesis, without a doubt. And, and I, don't have a good, I don't have a good explanation for them. I would say, though, that if, if we've been able to expand the realm of these cases with the independence of these Central Asian states, many of whom are, are research-based, like Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, uh, Azerbaijan, right? And they fit very, very nicely in. Uh, there's another question here about Arab exceptionalism, right? Uh, uh, Al Steppen wrote this article called Arab, Not Muslim Exceptionalism, right? That the Arab world is particularly... Uh, averse to democratic development. Not the Muslim world. You've got Malaysia, you've got Bangladesh, you've got Indonesia, right? But if we look at Arab states, even the non-oil ones have, have, have rentier elements, right? Have rentier elements. Look at a Jordan where foreign aid makes up, not, a, not the majority, but a chunk of, a significant chunk of government revenue. Egypt and Syria both of which relied upon foreign aid, Soviet, in the Syrian case, American, in the Egyptian case still, for quite a while. Uh, you see quite a, bit of, quite a bit of rentier elements, even in the non-oil states in the Arab world. So I actually think that, that, that we can use the rentier framework to help us explain to some extent even non-oil states in the Arab world that have high, high rent uh, components to their government revenue profile. This isn't perfect. Tunisia, in many ways, the most, uh, the most successful economic model in the Arab world outside of Dubai. Right? Uh, one of the most authoritarian Arab governments, more authoritarian than the Egyptians even. Uh, Morocco, 
right, with very little rent, some foreign aid, but very little rent, uh, has experimented with parliamentary, uh, parliamentary life but is not a democracy and the king holds executive power. The trouble with the Arab exceptionalism argument is what explains it, right? Uh, is it cultural? Is it there's something in Arab culture that just doesn't accord with democratic values and democratic notions? I think that's a tough argument to make. Uh, I think it's a tough argument to make. Uh, if it's not Islam, which is what many people who have made cultural arguments have said, you know, Islam means you're not going to be democratic. Uh, what is it about Arab culture that leads to this lack of democracy? And I haven't, I, I haven't seen a convincing argument right, that, that associates elements of Arab culture with this anti-democratic exceptionalism. I tend to associate, I tend to explain this Arab exceptionalism in the democratic wave uh, through Rantier, the Rantier explanation, and the strategic explanation, which is to say that because of their location in the world strategic picture and in the world economy, uh, these governments, oil and non-oil, uh, uh, frequently get a lot of outside support to maintain their regimes, right? be it Algeria, where the French were enormously supportive when the army shut down the democratic process in 1991, uh, be it Egypt, where the United States is enormously supportive of the government and has now backed off on even the minimal pressure it was putting for, for greater democratic, uh, greater democratic, uh, greater democratic reform in Egypt. Uh, why? Because uh, of the strategic locale of these places, you know, close to Europe, close to Israel, close to oil. And I think that that for me that that's a more persuasive explanation than kind of Arab cultural elements, which I just have never seen a good, for me, convincing argument about what particular Arab cultural elements are non-democratic lead or lead to lack of democracy. Ma'am. This is maybe a minor effect compared to what you were saying. Yeah. But, um, I was sitting reflecting on Amnesty International and the Human Rights Watch recently um, yelling once again that, that um, the national security, international security crisis has contributed to chilling effect on Eastern politics as they are in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. Right. I, actually, I think that that is a – you see more of that reflected in Egypt and Jordan, uh, places where there are active Islamist movements, uh, which are challenges, if not in complete opposition to the government, are challenges to the government, challenges to the regime. There you've seen the – particularly in Egypt in recent months, you've seen the, the, uh, the assertion of security – uh, rationales to close down the Muslim Brotherhood, close down a number of Muslim Brotherhood activities after the Brotherhood did very well in the parliamentary elections of 06, maybe December 05. I forget exactly when they were. Uh, I don't see that so much in the Gulf states because there's no real regime challenges in the Gulf states. I mean, what, what, you have security challenges like Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula to the Saudi regime. That's not a mass movement. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, a small, violent underground opposition. And yeah, they're, they're take, they're, the Saudi regime has a very heavy-handed security response to that. But it, it's not closing down civil society organizations because there's no civil society organizations to close down in Saudi Arabia. You know, there's not a, there's not a, there's not a move back from freedom because there's not much freedom there. But I do think that the security pretext is used in Egypt uh, and to a lesser extent in Jordan and to some extent in Syria uh, to justify nasty things. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Don't you think that the, if you introduce the element of history to this relationship, oh. then you get a different picture from particularly the context of Middle East Arab Gulf states, even Iran and Egypt, because oil was discovered in the context of colonial, semi-colonial arrangements. These leaders all were put in, picked up as your example of This really is, this relationship, while it has its own merit, it needs to be really contextualized in the historical setting to see 
I have absolutely no objection to that at all. <laughs> I, you know, I'm a, I'm a regionalist. I'm not one of these people who does the big cross-regional, like, like Michael Ross, who I studied here, does. I, yeah, I mean, my, my stock and trade is history and, 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 and uh, path-dependent, historically-based arguments for political conclusions. But, but history is not a variable, right? History in and of itself is not a factor. What in the history, right, uh, sends certain countries down some paths and other countries down other paths? And that's where, you know, I think we can talk about, uh, you can talk about critical junctures, you know, the fact that Kuwait got its uh, independence in 1961, not in 1971, right, for maybe the stronger constitutional uh, legislative stronger constitutional role the legislature has in Kuwait. Uh, you can talk about almost accidents of history, people in power, like the, the current Bahraini king, who apparently with no bottom-up pressures just said, I think we should have an elect elected parliament, a return to an elected parliament. Uh, so yeah, I mean, the only, the only thing I would say, we have to kind of break down what, what we mean by history. I, I am more interested in looking at the emergence of the nation state. Yeah. But, but I think that's true in a lot of places, right? I mean, if you look at sub-Saharan Africa or you look at, at, at Southeast Asia, these are states that also emerged from colonial histories. Uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, perhaps with uh, equally little historical background as many of the states in the Arab world, right? Uh, and yet those states in the Arab world that are, if you will, quote-unquote, artificial creations like a Jordan or a Syria or an Iraq, Seem to, seem to have some of the same problems that Egypt, which nobody would say is an artificial creation, right? Maybe the oldest state entity, and Iran, one of the oldest uh, existing political entities that can trace a real state identity back for millennia, right? Uh, and so I, 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 guess, I guess, without a doubt, the notion history is important, I find. Very congenial. But but we would have to talk about kind of the specifics of state building in, in, in under colonialism, and and those kinds of things we've, to flush we've it out. Run over but already. we have run, run over. People asking questions, so we have one more brief one more brief question and answer. Yeah, let me be very blunt. Okay. Uh, Islam doesn't go well with democracy. Okay. <laughs> Samuel Huntington, where are you? <laughs> I was waiting, waiting. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I'll, I'll answer. I'll Why don't you answer that? that. <laughs> Indonesia. <laughs> I, I can speak for the world's largest Muslim country, um, Indonesia, and it's been a democracy since 1998 and seems to be doing just fine, despite the fact that 88% of the population are Muslims. So it doesn't, it doesn't work, at least in that one case. Bangladesh. The, the, you know, there are some, some examples of Muslim Turkey has done a fairly good job recently, although it's in a constitutional crisis right now, on the question of religion and state. Uh, but but I, I, think, I think it's hard to make the argument about Islam, because to make the argument about Islam, you have to make, a, you have to make an argument about Islam being a, a, an absolutely fixed religion whose meaning uh, cannot adapt to local circumstances. And I just, and I, and I just don't buy that. I, I think it, without a doubt, there are Islamists who make very strong anti-democratic arguments, right? The core of the Sunni fundamentalist movement out of which, which Al-Qaeda has emerged as a branch, right, says that sovereignty belongs to God, right? And efforts by man to legislate are, are evidence of polytheism, which is the worst sin in Islam. So yes, Islam has been used to denigrate democratic practices, but it's also been used to justify it. Right? Islamic thinkers will talk about shura, how the, how the Quran calls for, 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 uh, for leaders to take the counsel of those around them before they decide. And so I think Islam, like any of the great world religions, has elements in it that can be configured to support democratic, uh, democratic initiatives, with some exceptions. You know, things that are actually in the Quran, like, say, inheritance laws, you'd have a tough time making the argument that you could legislate them. Right? 
But let's face it, there really isn't that much in the Quran or in the Hadith that is specific legislation. And nothing about what to vote the budget this year, right? So, so there's, there's, there's enough room, I think, in Islam to justify and support democratic initiatives if you have clever, uh, clever thinkers and clever politicians to, to run it through. <laughs> this, this debate, this debate will continue next year. Right in, in the class. <laughs> Thank you. All Thank you for coming. There was a question over here that I missed.